0: Good evening everyone and welcome to addiction treatments that work this is Thursday it's January 12th of 2012 I'm your host Kenneth Anderson tonight our guests will be dr. Pat Denning who is the author of over the influence also practicing harm reduction psychotherapy which just came out in the second edition and our second guest will be Gabrielle Glaser who has a book coming out soon called Uncorked about women and alcohol? Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little plug for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free of charge, lay led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. The book is called How to Change Your Drinking A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available on Amazon. And for more information, you can go to hamsnetwork.org book. Our first guest is uh, Dr. Pat Denning from the Harm Reduction uh, Therapy Center in San Francisco. The new book, the second edition of Practicing Harm Reduction Psychotherapy, is out now. I've been reading through it. It is uh, the best book on addiction treatment, period. This is the one everybody needs to read to do 21st century addiction treatment. Welcome, Pat. How are you doing this evening?
1: Wow, Ken, that was quite an introduction. Thank you. <laughs> I'm I'm fine and I'm uh you know, I am really excited about the book. It, I to be honest, I'm mostly excited that it's finished. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's so many people
0: out there that still have, I mean, so many counselors out there that still have the old idea that you have to, you know, beat people over the head with a baseball bat that you have to force them, that you have to do bad things to them, not just uh in the professional world, But uh, especially among lay people who watch these TV shows like Intervention and things like that and get these Mm -hmm. awful, all this awful misinformation, and this is actually the worst way to help people change. And, you know, the best way is your approach, and tell us a little bit more about it.
1: Well, you know, this is an approach that I and now my other colleagues around the country Um, have been developing over the past 20 years and um, I started thinking about this because I was frankly appalled at the state of treatment as usual in the United States where it it seemed fairly coercive, it seemed to be based on making people um, admit that they were powerless, which is one thing, but, but the feel of it was that you had to admit that you were a bad person and that you couldn't run your life, and so other people had to run it for you. Um, and I just found that really unsavory. I also recognized that this wasn't, I would refer people to drug treatment, and it just wouldn't work. Um, so I, I started looking around at, at alternatives, and what I was most surprised to find is that there really is an enormous body of actual research out there about clinical approaches to alcohol and drug problems and none of it ever gets into a school program I never heard it in my master's degree, I never heard it in my PhD program and so I was kind of mad that wait a minute there really is something out there we've known for close to 30 years now what actually helps people change um, drug and alcohol um problems and and it 's not anything that has come um to the you know up to the daylight so that 's where I really started from was to look at what we love to now call evidence based treatments and um and and take a look at what works and obviously what we've found is that what works is collaborating with people, offering people choices respecting the choices they 've made and and then what i added into that was a combination of public health harm reduction principles and frankly good old standard psychodynamic treatment which which really speaks to the fact that you know we're ambivalent we you know we you know whatever we do we have at least two or three opinions about it whatever we want to change we often also don't want to change and and so taking that ambivalence as a natural human phenomenon rather than a sign of some disease or a sign of denial really helped me um, continue my work as a psychotherapist and just move it into the drug and alcohol arena. You know, that people people know if they have a problem with drugs or alcohol. People don't want to have the problems that they have. And the the trick is to decrease shame, decrease stigma, develop some trust because, frankly, people who have misused drugs and alcohol don't trust professionals because they've been treated so badly in the past, and, and to work hard to develop the trust so that the person will actually feel like they can, they can tell their whole story to us. And it's that telling of the whole story that allows, allows the person to make better decisions. And then we sort of come in with techniques and strategies and skills building and all that other good stuff, but it's really it's the, the, the relationship between the therapist or the counselor or the case manager um, and the person who's struggling. It's the relationship that has the most power for healing.
0: Yeah, the therapeutic alliance is getting talked about by quite a lot of people recently as really the most important thing of all. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, yeah, and and I think that um you know that that what happens when when we're able to engage in that kind of an alliance is that um we we are are basically saying to the person, I wanna know who you are and I want to know what you think is important. I want to know what's hurting you. I want to know the whole picture, um, and I'm not going to pass judgment on that. You know, unfortunately, a lot of times, in, in especially, you know, in training to be a psychotherapist, people are taught all of those things, and yet that door to empathy closes for drug use.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's it's as if all of a sudden people who are drinking too much or doing drugs too much, all of a sudden they're, they're different than the rest of us. And there's this us and them that takes over. And even therapists who've been trained to be respectful um, often end up telling people what to do you know, or punishing them by kicking them out of therapy.
0: Yeah, all too often the psychotherapists have been trained that, okay, here's what you do when you're dealing with mental illness, with anxiety, depression, and when you have someone that reports substance abuse, what you do is you tell them to go to AA meetings and abstain, and you stop there and say, you know, unless you go to AA meetings and abstain, I won't work with you.
1: Right, right.
0: And, you know, many people find – AA is very offensive to their religious beliefs. There are also mm-hmm. people that uh, they're not comfortable in groups. Uh-huh, of right. people don't want abstinence as a goal. They, they want to change to use less, have less problems, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and, you know, being told, you know, because I've been in this uh, situation over and over again when I was seeking therapy, and it would be, well, you have to go to AA, and I was like, right well, do you have any clinical evidence that's published in a peer-reviewed journal that says that uh, this is what I have to do on be
1: Right. I,
0: I come back the next right. week. Right,
1: and, and and now you're a difficult patient <laughs> Ken. <laughs> hmm. So I come back the next
0: week, and my therapist says, well, I asked an MD. He said he thought AA was good. Well, excuse me, I didn't ask you to give me somebody's opinion. You know, maybe he likes to vote for
1: Republicans
0: too, but that doesn't tell me. Mm-hmm.
1: It's good for me. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, you know, and Ken, I think that that's, I mean, it, it's often a problem for professionally, you know, professional therapists, and particularly those who are, you know, who spent the most time in school and paid the most money for it, you know, mm-hmm. um, like, you know, psychologists like myself or psychiatrists, that there's a kind of arrogance that is bred into your training, and... um and even though we you know at least therapists try to hide that i mean a lot of you know medical professionals don't try to hide it but there really is this idea i know what's best for you and um <clears throat> and you should pay attention to me and and even though that's not what therapists tend to lead with that when when someone like you you know says i don't want to go to aa when you challenge that authority, um, a lot of therapists really get ruffled. And um, and all of a sudden you're, you're in the category of that difficult client rather well, I, than the therapist saying, whoa, this person actually needs to have a conversation about this that's more complicated than I've been letting it be.
0: Yeah, all too often it seems like the therapist's education about drug and alcohol treatment is like, oh, one hour of being told refer them to aa and if they say they won't go it means they're in denial and you have to push harder and keep pushing until they go or Mm -hmm. more likely they will just drop out now i'm not saying you know that aa is is bad for everybody i have a lot of colleagues in the needle exchange programs who work in needle exchange they go to na they go to set programs they find it's a good fit for them and you know i totally respect that because you know this is what harm reduction is about is you know meeting everyone where they are at and helping people find a path that works for them
1: hmm well and i think that you know unfortunately what has happened is that you know that AA and some of its offshoots you know started out as a spiritual fellowship to provide support mm-hmm. and what has happened now is that a may still d- provide that in the individual meetings but it's taken on this—it's um, it, taken on this magical persona that somehow um, it, it's like. You know, what happens in AA meetings can be very helpful for some people. Mm-hmm. The ideology of AA as the only way that we're allowed to think about drug problems is a problem in this country. And and that's where I kind of, you know, people sometimes say, well, you're bashing AA. And it's like, I'm not actually bashing AA groups. I am bashing the ideology of AA that makes us have to all believe the same thing and makes this process of addiction all the same for everybody. That that sort of monolithic stance about addiction, which is embodied in the media um you know, portrayal of AA, that that's totally different than what actually happens in twelve step meetings. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. You know? Well when we say you know, when we say some people are allergic to penicillin and they shouldn't have penicillin, we're not bashing penicillin.
1: Right. <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, Ken, I mean the other the other thing too is that um you know, to get a little more into into, you know, this this new book, mm-hmm. um, you know, when I, when my publisher asked um, asked me to do a second edition, he said, you know, it's been ten years, time to do a second edition. My first thought, of course, was over my dead body. Um, but then um, Jeannie Little, who co-wrote Over the Influence with me, said, no, 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 we could do it together. So I said, okay, okay. And my thought was that, that I would look through it, and we would edit it, and we would add some new information, and, you know, we would bring it up to date um and as we started working on it what became clear to me which was both kind of horrifying and exciting um what became clear is that oh my goodness we have learned so much mm-hmm. since the publication of that first book we have we've worked with thousands of people since then we've trained thousands of people we've read you know a million articles and books and and um and i realized that that we couldn't just do a rewrite, that we actually had to reconceptualize. It's like, okay, so now what is harm reduction psychotherapy and what's what's the basis of it, what's behind it, what do we know? Um, and so we've ended up with some, um, well, we've ended up basically with only one chapter being pretty much essentially the same as the first book, which is the chapter on assessment. Um but we started really taking a look at what what have we learned about people in addiction, and what we've learned a lot is about the um the overwhelming presence of severe trauma in mm-hmm. the lives of people who have serious addictions and we've learned that um especially through our community work where we 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 work with predominantly homeless seriously mentally ill, drug-addicted folks who are are often psychotic, that the development of the relationship with a person who has been so damaged, both by society and stigma, by mental illness, by their own drug use, they've been so damaged that developing a relationship with them is the most delicate thing you could ever try to do. And sometimes it happens in... I say hello to the person on the street twice a day for four months before they will come into the building and say, where's that lady that I used to see with the gray hair? You know, -hmm. know, and then maybe they'll say hi to me in the clinic. Maybe they'll sit down. Maybe they won't. And so so what we've learned is with these particularly severely traumatized, um, severely impacted people that the relationship is really all there is. There's, there's no technique needed. There's no skills, you know, really, that it's really about relationship building and support. And, it, and then it's within that that, oh, my goodness, people actually start making changes. People actually find the strength and the information within themselves or within their community to start making changes. And we don't do anything but sit and say, hey, did you get clean socks this week? Mm-hmm. You know, so that, that's something that we've learned that was really quite startling, that, that with a lot of folks you don't actually even have to do anything except love them.
0: Mm-hmm. That's one thing that I've learned, too, over the years, uh, since you mentioned something similar. Um, patience. You know, we have to be patient with people and wait Until they want to make the change, you know, Mm -hmm. and I've noticed that, you know, since I've been running groups online now for years and, you Mm -hmm. know, people dip their toe in the water, disappear for six months, come back, maybe they're around for a week, go away again for a while. And then, you know, in a couple after a couple of years, maybe all of a Mm -hmm. sudden I want to engage. I'm ready. I want to make the change now.
1: Right, exactly, exactly. And, in you know, with folks like in, in our private offices, um, you know, where people have to pay sort of market rates for therapy, you know, people on the surface are much more together. You know, they've got jobs, they've often got families, um, and yet they often still go through the same process, but because they're, they're sort of better socialized <laughs> to be good mm-hmm. clients, they'll come every week. Um, but that doesn't mean that they're actually engaged in a process of change. So they're kind, they're kind of like coming in and going out and disappearing and coming back, even though they're showing up all the time. Mm-hmm. And and one of the hardest things for us in, in the private practice is um, helping family members understand the nature of change. Um, family members, you know, are just by the time their loved one gets into treatment the family members are you know they are at their wits end and they don't want to hear that this person's you know road to recovery may take a while they want to hear the magic of the 28 day program
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know and they really you know they'll say he's been he's been coming for 2 months and he's not any better and it's like, no, you're right. He's not. Well, you know, he should he should go into rehab. And it's like, he'll go into rehab, and he probably won't be better when he comes out either. And you will have spent twenty times more than you're paying us. But there's the, this mythology that people 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 are going to change really fast if they want to, and if other people want them to. And it's, you know, it's just like, no, actually, none of us change very fast. I I always like to start off trainings that I do by saying, you know, so how's your New Year's resolution going? You know, and everybody starts giggling and, you know, some start blushing. And it's like, yeah, okay, that's now, that's all you need to know about addiction and recovery. It's what mm-hmm. you just experienced yourself when I asked you how your New Year's resolution's going. Um and and it's a way of humanizing this whole problem with drugs and alcohol and the process of getting better.
0: Well on that on that point, my New Year's resolution is actually going quite well.
1: Oh oh good. <laughs>
0: good. Um but, do you want to share uh, what it is? <laughs> um yeah, I want to change my diet. I need to take off some weight. I put on a lot when I quit smoking. And I've been carrying it around for 3 years now and it's, you know, time. But here's the thing. Um I spent uh all of December making plans about implementing the New Year's resolution.
1: Oh, okay.
0: So, it was not spur of the moment. There was an article uh recently, I mean in, gen- in this in January about New Year's resolutions. 22% mm-hmm. Twenty-two percent succeed, which is better than zero success. Right. And the people that succeed, they make they make plans and they set small, measurable goals mm-hmm. that you know that they can accomplish. And these are the right. people that succeed. And wow, that's all harm reduction, isn't it?
1: It is. It's absolutely harm reduction. And you know, there's another. Uh, there's an article that was published a few years ago, maybe as many as five years ago now, um, called "If at First You Don't Succeed," and the subtitle is "The False Hope of Change." And these psychologists talked about what, what's the problem? What what happens when people try to change? Why do we fail? And and they have all these statistics about not only New Year's resolutions, but, you know, all sorts of other attempts that we make to change our behavior, particularly health, health-related behaviors, um, and that we continue to try, even though for the most part we fail miserably over and over again. And and so what they said was that the reasons that we fail um, are, there are three reasons that, one, we um We underestimate the effort that it's going to take to make the change. Mm -hmm. We underestimate the amount of time that we're going to have to put that effort into it. And third, we overestimate the benefits. And I thought the third one was especially good because... Mm -hmm. um, because it's you know that that's part of it it's true it's like oh you know if i just do this then i'll you know i'll i'll be successful if i just do this i won't have this anymore and we get all excited about the benefits that we're going to reap and then sometimes that doesn't happen and the the classic thing that i i like to say is sort of like okay yeah so i i can lose 40 pounds but i might still be ugly you know, and it's like, oh, okay, so losing 40 pounds might not, you know, get me my Prince Charming, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, you know, so I think that there really is, we really have to humanize this whole change process. And and like you said, you can't just leap into it. You've spent a fair amount of time making plans. Um, and the other thing that people do, which I just love, is... Um, When people decide on a certain date that they're going to make a plan, they usually then give themselves permission to be bad before that Mm -hmm, time. mm -hmm. And I call it the last supper syndrome, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: you know, where before you go on a diet, you know, the night before you start your diet, you eat a pint of ice cream. Um, You know, the night before you decide to, to exercise, the day before you decide to exercise, you, you know, make sure you lay on the couch all day and watch TV.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: you know, and so there is this um th- there's this idea that we're going to be punishing ourselves by making change so we should indulge ourselves before we do it and it's it's really we're i mean and this is human nature, this isn't just about addiction, you know we're all a little crazy about um blaming ourselves for our problems and then thinking we can punish ourselves into solutions, mhm, mhm hasn't worked for me.
0: No, it doesn't work that way at all.
1: Yeah. The,
0: yeah. Well, there's just one point I wanted to address here in the book, and I, I think this is in your book because I remember it was also in Gabor Mate's book. Uh-huh. Um,
1: do, you
0: talk, do you talk about uh, about how environment turns genes on and off? Uh-huh. Yes, and how trauma affects genes? Right. Right. Yeah, yeah, I thought and, that was and, really important.
1: So. Mm-hmm. you know, it it really is because it helps explain um why somebody is more vulnerable to developing an alcohol or drug problem than somebody else. Um and, you know, of course, you know, since I really believe that, you know, what we call addictions are biological, psychological and sociocultural, they're not diseases. Um, I've already thought that. You know, it's like there's always biopsychosocial causes to it. But, um, you know, so it doesn't surprise me that people are very different in their, how they end up with a drug or alcohol problem. But there is so much research now and so much clinical experience about what happens to the brains of people who've been seriously traumatized that it's... um, you know it we cannot ignore it anymore in doing treatment um that that we've all, we've known for a while that that experience can turn on or off certain gene expressions and in particular with trauma what happens in the brain is that because the brain under trauma is releasing chemicals that are part of the stress you know the the fight flight response Those chemicals then block the expression of other genes that turn on the self-soothing and the pleasure chemicals. So what we've got then from early in life with people with chronic trauma is that they're being overly stimulated for their fight-flight and under-stimulated for soothing and pleasure. And And we start seeing that in behaviors by the time a kid is three. You know, certainly by the time a kid is ten, and and what happens as as kids move out in the world with not being, you know with being overly reactive, with you know being unable to soothe themselves, unable to feel a lot of pleasure, is that they start looking for it, and one of the best things to find is drugs or alcohol, and drugs or alcohol start replacing the pleasure chemicals and the chemicals that soothe you. And it's really hard to it's hard to put them down if you've just experienced relief for the first time in your life. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things we have to be very aware of then in treatment is that the person's natural tendency is going to overreact to bad feelings. And so part of what we have to do in treatment is to make sure that the treatment – doesn't doesn't overly bring up bad feelings, you know. It, you know, we've all as therapists, we've always thought, oh, you've got to really dig into it and, you know, get down there and you know feel your pain and do this and do that. And it's like, no, 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 no. Let's wait a minute here. When mm-hmm, we're talking mm-hmm. about people with trauma, digging in just takes the scabs off, and it, it re-traumatizes people. And we have to find a way. And this is where more somatic, more body-based approaches come in. Um, we have to help a person find and develop their own resources to calm themselves down before we let them talk about things that are upsetting. And that's really been the revolution in psychotherapy, not just with addiction, but you know, psychotherapy in general over the last five or ten years is that we have we have to stop asking people to talk about their trauma and start helping them not talk about it start help them you know get their bodies calm enough that they're not spewing out all of these danger chemicals in their brain all the fight flight stuff and once you can help the person train themselves to do that then they may be able to go back and talk about the trauma but you know what sometimes they don't even need to. Mhm. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's there's no need to talk about it because now they've mastered they've mastered that their their horrible traumatic reaction. So they don't they don't need to go revisit it. So that's really been the revolution and and there's a lot just an, a lot about trauma and the treatment of trauma in in this new book because we've just we've just been so convinced that um that this is also another reason why harm reduction is essential in a treatment model because it's so gentle.
0: Mhm. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, and confronting people and pushing people and making them write down their autobiographies, you know, is is very hard on people and is probably contributes to why even our newer drug treatment doesn't work so well because we incorporate what we think is trauma work into it. By having people talk about their trauma, and then they're just triggered all the time.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, lots of people say, you know, I left my psychiatrist's office after I uh, told about my traumatic childhood, and I went out and got a drink.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I would, too. (laughs) I would, too. Well, we've,
0: we've got about a minute or two to finish up, which is just we barely scratched the surface now. But it says a lot about, to me, it says a lot about what we need to do for drug Prevention for addiction prevention is actually to reform society so that people are not traumatized all the time.
1: That's right. That's right. And that and and the reforming society that's where the whole issue of race and privilege and poverty come in because the cultural the the cultural trauma that is visited on people um, is is enormous Um, and you know the. There's a, a, a book called the uh, Post Traumatic Slave Syndrome that we we uh, refer to in our book that really talks mm-hmm. about what has happened you know what what has happened to African Americans and particularly African American families and men you know what has happened as a result of PTSD from slavery era and how has that how has that you know sort of helped generate a, a, a culture of both violence and drug addiction. So I think, yeah, we, we really need... Yeah, I'm a child of the 60s. I always think the first thing to do is transform society. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it looks like the evidence is uh, going that way, too. And now yep. we're going to have to bring in our second guest that we've already gone through our first segment. that We went so okay. quickly. But thank, thank you, you so, so
1: much, Ken. It's always yeah. wonderful to have a discussion with you.
0: It's been great to have you on the show, and I want everyone out there if you're a counselor a therapist of any sort you have to buy a copy of the second edition practicing harm reduction psychotherapy it's a brand new book it's uh if you have the first one it's not adequate you got to get the second it's a brand new book
1: thanks and the website is harmreductiontherapy.org
0: all right
1: now okay we'll- ken okay bye bye
0: Now we're going to bring on our second guest here, this Gabrielle Glaser, who uh, has a book coming out soon called Uncorked. It's about uh, women and alcohol. And Gabrielle, can you hear me?
2: I can. Can you hear me?
0: I can hear you fine.
2: Great. Hi, Ken. Uh, hi, how are you doing tonight? Good, thank you. How are you? I'm good,
0: I'm good. We've talked about the book before, so I'm just going to let you get started off here. What? got you interested in the topic of women and alcohol
2: well I'm a journalist and for most of my career I've covered the intersection of health and culture and in particular women and so whether it's fertility whether it's fertility issues or balancing work and life um, I've I've always taken a particular interest, and of course, I'm a woman myself. And a couple of years ago, I I really started to notice a, a big shift in how women were drinking and joking about drinking, talking about drinking. And I had a, 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 a my third child ten years ago, about ten years ago, and I got as baby gifts I got a lot of alcohol. And it was a bad time in New York City at that time. It was right after nine eleven, but still, I, it was just kind of an odd thing to get as a baby gift, um, especially as a mother. And it kind of stuck in the back of my mind that, gee, maybe there's something that's really changed in, in the culture at large. And not long after that, I, I moved back to the West Coast where I'm from, and there had been no... You know no no attacks on American soil on the i mean on 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 buildings in the west coast, and women were still drinking in the same way and joking about their drinking and and it it just seemed to be sort of bubbling up no no pun intended really and um, papers would cross my desk, press releases would cross my desk I would cover you know drunken accidents in which young girls had been involved and older women had been involved and it just kind of started sticking with me and a couple of years ago I've written books before and a couple of years ago an editor approached me with an idea the idea to to explore it and so and so here I am and I'm working on some edits now and should be in galley soon and hope to to hold a copy of it in my hand it's actually not a messy manuscript <laughs>
0: Well, we have seen a lot of this in the culture. It's not uh, too long ago a book came out. I think it was called "Sippy Cups Are Not for Chardonnay." Have you heard about that? Exactly. one?
2: Exactly, exactly, exactly. And that was that's exactly what I'm 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 referring to. But it's not just that. You know, on Facebook there are there's a, a group that has a couple hundred thousand, at least a hundred thousand, more than a hundred thousand members that said, uh, and it's a group called I if I. I, if I don't get my wine, I'm going to sell my kids. And I started seeing T-shirts that said "Don't ask me anything." I had book club last night with wine bottles, kind of uh, a skew on on the embossed on the front of the T-shirt. And it, it's it was sort of a wink, wink. Um, gosh, our lives are so crazy. We have to have this release valve. And. You know, I, I was listening to your earlier guest, to Pat Denning, speak about the, about culture and privilege, and of course, this is there's a lot of drug addiction in, uh, across all cultures, but in particular, this type of of drinking um, that I'm talking about, it may not necessarily be alcohol dependence, but this sort of serious daily drinking tends to be among women in uh, upper socioeconomic and it's men too but but it's really growing among women in higher socioeconomic brackets.
0: Okay, um did you do research on that or did you find Oh, a yes, I did. I
2: did, I did mm-hmm. quite a lot of it and even just yesterday a big study came out that looked at 450,000 Americans. It was a survey the CDC did. Exam, and it, it was a random telephone calls that included younger people because for the first time this study um, included cell phone numbers, random cell phone numbers. So they got mm-hmm. a really good sampling of both older people and younger people. And what was really surprising is that they found alcohol correlated directly with income. And some people believe there. I mean, they're, they're, certainly that's been noticed before, some researchers suggest that college campuses, and you and I talked about this earlier this week, mm-hmm. um, some people suggest that college campuses are sort of a breeding ground for drinking abusively. And I I would doubt, unless you're perhaps in Utah or at an evangelical campus where there's absolutely no drinking tolerated, that, you know, I mean, I look back to my college career 25 years ago and certainly 30 i graduated 25 years ago certainly um there was a lot of drinking going on binge drinking going on in the weekends you're away from your parents for the first time nobody's watching you and you're there you're under pressure to do well and get good grades and a lot of people overdo it and they continue to overdo it throughout their adult lives
0: well Not to put you on the spot too much here, but uh, did you see anything in this survey about uh, lower income groups that were using less alcohol? Would they, for example, tend to use other drugs more or would they tend to be more religious and have more prohibitions or was there nothing like that that you saw in the survey? Oh,
2: and and, and right now I'm looking at this study and in in particular, again, I I focus on Alcohol specifically, so I wasn't looking at other drugs, but in general, yes, the more religious a person is, the more likely they are to be an abstainer and actually that that follows um that's that that tends to be among Protestants and evangelicals, and it tends also to be a regional um, a, 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 a regional difference, for example, there are far more people who abstain regularly in the South than there are on either coast or in Wisconsin, which is, again, something that we discussed, and and it's something that this CDC study found yesterday, that the highest level of binge drinking, and, you know, everybody knows this, I'm not telling any secrets here, um, is in Wisconsin. Mm
0: -hmm. Oh, yeah, that comes out every year that uh, they have the number one alcohol consumption per capita. And in Wisconsin, they celebrate that with great pride, you know. Mhm. Hmm. do you know why? Um, do I know why they have such a high consumption or why they No, have no, no. Not? Do you know
2: why they celebrate it?
0: Um. well, it's It's looked like something to be proud of in Wisconsin that you can drink a lot. At least a lot of people do yeah. feel that way. Um There's a great piece on YouTube by Lewis Black, the comedian called Drinking in Wisconsin, which our listeners can look up, and you can look up after the show. It's hysterical. Uh, but he concludes by saying, you know, you guys are not alcoholics. You're professionals.
2: <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's it's funny. I'll It's a very
0: for. funny piece. But, you know, when I was in Wisconsin, you know, tap beer was 25 cents.
2: Wow. You know, you yeah, so there many- was an incentive. Of course, the brewers make it. Um, but I guess you just answered my question because there are so many brewers there. And breweries, but there's an incentive to to drink more of it. It's cheap, and um, why not?
0: It's very cheap. At the same period in time in Minnesota, in the the state next door, beer was a dollar. Tap beer was a dollar. In Wisconsin, was twenty five cents. You know.
2: Wow. Huh.
0: Yeah. Every everybody's got a local brewery. You know, a few miles away. They they everybody likes to drink a local brew too. They say it's better when it's fresh. So. Mm hmm. But we're getting really far afield now. Let's get yes, back. Yes, we are. Um, yeah, because I think often. Well, I'm just speaking uh, impressionistically now, not from surveys. But I think a lot of times in people with lower incomes, you have people that are more strictly religious, and maybe Correct. have more. Correct. So there's
2: no doubt. There's no doubt about that. Yes, absolutely.
0: And they maybe have more prohibitions. There's another interesting study from the 60s. Uh, Cahalan and Room. Look this up sometime. Where they found that uh, the Protestant religions that condemned drinking had the most abstainers and the most alcohol dependence and the fewest moderate drinkers. So, it's,
2: oh, that doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, it, it, it really that doesn't surprise me at all. I saw a study the other day. It it wasn't a uh, it was a survey. It wasn't a study. It was a, a you know a a, a, a uh, uh, I don't know if it was a television survey or a, an online survey, but it was of evangelicals. And of those who, six out of ten, said that they did not drink.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: And even though their religions may have prohibited alcohol in general, so Baptists, Southern Baptist. Baptists, um, doesn't, doesn't do Methodists pro, prohibit alcohol? Do you know? Um,
0: I can't remember. <laughs> I yeah,
2: guess, I... I can't remember. I can't remember either. But at in, in any at any rate, um, e- even among the 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 ten, you know, if, if four out of ten are drinking, and they they also said, oh well, we drink only on special occasions. We drink, but you either prohibit or you don't prohibit. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, that to me was a little bit. I just I just wondered if everybody was really truly um, telling the truth on that. <laughs> Well, you
0: find also in the Cahalen and Room study that uh, liberal Protestants, where uh, drinking was accepted, had uh, lots of moderate drinkers, not many abstainers, not many with alcohol dependence. Um, the same with Italian Catholics. There was a lot of moderate drinking. The Irish tended more to, you know, have the alcohol as the devil and would either be lots of abstainers or lots of heavy drinkers.
2: And I think that remains true today. I actually have a, a book on my desk that's really fascinating. It's about the sociocultural rules of, of or, or sociocultural, not rules, but it's a sociocultural look at who drinks more and why. And there's a reason for that. You know, people will look and say, I know, referring to your earlier conversation about about the, the quote-unquote gene for alcohol, but, or gene for alcohol dependence, but, and you know people will say oh well you know I'm Irish of course I got to wash watch it you've got to you know you always have to be careful the the, the Irish genes you got to be careful and actually there is just as pat was saying and just as we know there are actually really strong socio-cultural roots to Irish drinking patterns
1: mm-hmm. when the english
2: invaded ireland one of the only places where men could could speak Celtic freely was in a pub. There were no prohibitions on drinking, and while they were occupied by the British, they, they they needed some sort of release. They were being treated cruelly, and they couldn't speak their own language, and it was tolerated by by their families, by the church, by, by um, Irish society as a form of acceptable rebellion mm-hmm. and so and that just kind of got passed on and i i think it's a really i think it's really interesting to 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 understand and that's what i really tried to get into in the book it's really very important to understand the historical relationships that we as a nation and and in particular as our our, our own ethnicities what our own relationship is with alcohol. What does this mean to us? What is it? Is it celebrated as an integrated part of of our, uh, of your family's culture, or is it something that's to be um, prohibited and forbidden at all costs? It's the devil, as you say. It's, it's terrible. Or is it, you know, I mean, you look at the French and the Italians, and, and they have the highest alcohol consumption of, of anybody on earth, and yet relatively uh, they do have a high rate of, of liver problems but not not compared to cultures i mean but less so than in cultures where there is more moderate drinking and more uh i mean less moderate drinking and far more binge drinking in other words, it doesn't necessarily correlate. Yes, there's a high rate of drinking. There's also a high rate of liver damage, but it nowhere near correlates. The rate of liver damage nowhere near correlates to the rate of liver damage in countries where there's a high rate, high abstention rate, and a very high binge drinking rate.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you well, follow? Before, yes, absolutely. Before we leave this, I was going to mention one other survey that that was recent, um, and it kind of followed up the Kahalin and Room thing, and it found that. Uh, that uh, Italian-Americans and Irish-Americans of later generations, our current generation, most of them identify themselves as just Americans. And the drinking patterns are typical American drinking patterns. So, it, you know, it doesn't, the cultural influence doesn't stay forever. It's not a genetic influence. It's not, nothing to do with genes. But the yeah, I
2: would uh, submit mm-hmm. to you um, the Jersey Shore. hmm mm-hmm. mm-hmm you're supposed to you're you're supposed to laugh do you do you, are you familiar I, with this, I
0: this don't have television
2: help. show where mo- i think that the pretty much the entire cast or the majority of the cast is italian american and yeah i mean you're absolutely right they're just, they're certainly not drinking in um traditional italian they consider themselves italian and they are italian american and they're very proud of that but they're not drinking in in any way that's resembling traditional italian uh um consumption patterns not not in the slightest
0: yeah I have to say i I gave up television about twenty five years ago because it was too addictive for me it was
2: mm-hmm. an,
0: it was an addiction I could not control unlike alcohol, which I did better with controlled drinking with. Television. I could not do controlled television watching, so I'm kind of I'm kind of out of it on this Jersey shore stuff.
2: Well, as a resident of New Jersey, it's really uh, I don't. I've only watched it once for about five minutes, but as a resident of New Jersey, I have to say it's, it's a little bit hard to escape. Um, it's kind of it's kind of everywhere, and the cultural references are are pretty um, uh, um, they're pretty uh, uh, fast and loose. Even our our governor is uh, distressed that this somehow represents the the people of the of of the state of New Jersey the fine state of New Jersey
0: okay i want to go on to another topic cuz i believe your book talks about uh alcoholics anonymous and uh women and aa
2: yes indeed it certainly it certainly does um i'm a normal drinker and i don't i didn't have any experience with aa and when i started looking at this you know cultural notion of women drinking more than ever before which in fact was was uh, uh, borne out by statistics certainly by what people tell federal researchers what people tell gallup pollsters um now almost two-thirds of, of women in the united states say that they are regular drinkers now a regular drinker can be anybody who drinks a glass of wine on a Friday night with dinner to somebody who drinks two glasses of wine every night with dinner. So there's there's a lot of, of room in what a regular drinker actually means, but nevertheless, the number of people who say that they're regular drinkers has risen significantly over the past 25 years. It's the highest rate that it's been right now in 2000. The most recent study was 2010, so it's the highest rate that it's been in, in 25 years. And, um, oh, my gosh, I lost my train of thought. What was I saying? Uh, we were
0: talking about women and AA.
2: Oh, women and AA. Right, right, right. Okay, so so looking backward from that, I, I was wondering how, if, if a woman developed a problem, how she got help. And so I started going to AA meetings open AA meetings nearby my house in in Manhattan um pretty much all around the country and i was i was really stunned actually at how um how people were able to find solace in this what seemed to me to be a broken record of trauma over and over and over and over again and as somebody who's been in therapy who's who's i I'm, I'm very open about the fact that i've suffered from depression before as somebody who's who's you know kind of knows what it's like to feel really bad and knows what it's like to feel much better i thought to myself oh my god how in the world does this help anybody going on and on and on over and over and over you've got people with a stopwatch reciting their worst moments and as women in particular i i was i was really curious about how the recitation of these of these bad moments, of these deep shames and difficult embarrassments and and um stigmatizing events, you know, getting a DUI, losing custody of your kids, having to go to jail, those are stigmatizing events for anybody, but they're particularly stigmatizing in this culture for women. And you just don't want to be a a, a lush, a female lush, and you certainly don't want to be a female lush who's a mother because that really labels you as a really awful mom and no matter how uh, progressive we might think we are as a country we still really revere mom and apple pie and we don't revere drunk moms who um get duis and so I, i really started looking at how this might affect women and what the the actual and again i mean i'm sure you'll probably giggle at this but i i I started wondering well what's the success rate of of aa and does it differ among women and men and initially i i asked of course i appealed to aa itself Hmm. and you know the numbers that i got from there i i i wasn't really sure were scientifically valid so i started looking elsewhere and i you know, I, I, I learned what most people in the harm reduction field and in other um, alternative therapies for alternative treatments for for alcohol dependence, I learned what, what you folks all know. But to me it was a surprise, and I would imagine that it's a surprise to a lot of people out there. Pretty much just think, well, AA works, doesn't it? You just do whatever you do there. You do the steps.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: when I, you know, when I really started looking at that, I thought, well, if if it's true that AA is a disease, which, by the way, I I don't, I mean that alcoholism is a disease, which, by the way, I I, I don't really believe. I think it's a very complex uh, um, set of, of of things that lead to a, a certain condition, but it's not a disease like one gets cancer or one gets asthma or one gets um diabetes and you wouldn't turn to God for those things, so why would you turn to it for this? It just doesn't seem to it just didn't seem to make sense, and yet it has stuck as you know I mean as your listeners know, and that mm-hmm. to me is just it it remains um deeply perplexing
0: um, I don't know how perplexing it is I mean. AA is set up to really, if if you buy into it, it's going to hold on to you for life. You say that you're powerless; you'll die unless you're rescued by a higher power. No, you'll uh, die if you stop going to meetings.
2: Right, but I I think what I guess my my mm, 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 the reason I, I think it's perplexing is because it it it's so fundamentally um, flawed, and yet the culture at large, I would believe. Believes, I, I would guess. I mean, certainly that's what I've run into in two years of talking to people about this. People say, "Well, that's what works, right? You just have to go to rehab, right? You're just supposed to go off to rehab, and you get all better, right?" And and they believe what they see on television. They believe that if you go and 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 get you know fixed up in a 28 day rehabilitation center or a 60-day rehabilitation center, or especially a 90-day rehabilitation center, and then you go to church basements the rest of your life, then that will fix you. And maybe it will for some people, but you and I both know that rate is very, very small, and it's even smaller among women than it is for men. Mm -hmm. And I think the whole powerlessness aspect among women is an even harder pill to swallow than it is for men. Women don't go through life... You know sticking out their chests and 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 believing that they're powerful and thumping their you know thumping their chest and believing that they're powerful it's just not something that we learn as as little girls in our society that's, mm-hmm. that's not the message we get so to go and repeat for the rest of your life that you're powerless, I don't think does does the psyche a great deal of uh I mean, I'm being facetious here i uh, I think it's very damaging
0: I agree I think it's very damaging for everyone um particularly I know you were going to say for women, for poor people, for people of color, for somebody like me, there's a poor white boy from the rural area that doesn't help either-
2: well, I agree you know and i i i I think that the 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 highest success rate and again, this is completely anecdotal is among College-educated or you know educated middle-class white Protestant Anglo-Saxon Protestant men who, who are from the Midwest. And if you're outside that paradigm, as you were, because it, and, and particularly people who live in 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 um, cities and towns, and you were up you know you were way on a on a farm and you didn't have access to to I mean you were telling me you you know you got your mail order books and
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You were uh, uh, an anomaly in your own household, and it doesn't really it doesn't really work for people who are outside the paradigm of what 1935 mm-hmm. America looked like, you know, in mm-hmm. Bill Wilson's eyes.
0: Mm-hmm. There's one more thing I wanted to add to that because there was a survey that the AA published. Uh, Some years ago, they quickly withdrew it, but I saw Anna Kosak had cited it. I actually saw the original ones before it disappeared from the Internet. Uh, But the average education of the AA member is 11th grade. So I don't think know?
2: Yes, I saw that that too, and and that was something. um, I saw that too, but in the 1930s and 40s, it typically uh, – the early AA members – did have some college education, and that's mm-hmm. what I was referring to when mm-hmm. I said that. That's the you know the people for whom for whom it works. I meant to. I, I, I should clarify that 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 was the, the 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 ideal AA member in the 1930s and 40s. The, the Marty Mans and the the uh, Bill Wilsons and the Dr. Bobs of the world certainly fit that that paradigm. But I I no really, um, today i believe yeah I, I i think today the the uh average education level is as you say eleventh um, grade or possibly high school high school grad,
1: yes,
0: I think what's really amazing is that uh there's so many m d s that uh, that psychiatrists that professionally trained people don't say. What a load of nonsense! You're going to cure a disease by holding hands and saying the Lord's prayer. Uh, for-
2: well, you know, and that's something else. that, you know, you you and Pat were talking about reforming society earlier. I would argue that we really need to train doctors better. I, and I know that there's a, a big push among people who are who are practitioners of of and who embrace different methods of treating alcohol dependence. Of being able to go to a general practitioner and say, you know what, I'm really worried I'm drinking too much. I'm unable to moderate on my own. I don't want to go to AA. That's not for me. What do you think about, you know, naltrexone? What do you think about um, uh, Camprol? What do you think about Baclofen? You know, I'm not saying that all of these these medications are, are magic bullets, but they're certainly helpful for mm-hmm. a number of people, and they deserve—people deserve to know about them. And first and foremost, doctors.
0: Mm-hmm. So,
2: uh, I, I, you know, you have to wonder—you have to wonder who's who benefiting from their not knowing. And I have some ideas on that. I'm sure you do too. But you know, I know I—I I interviewed a guy who went to medical school. In, in the m- mid-2000s, and his addiction treatment in Los Angeles, California, consisted of going to AA for a week, observing AA for a week, and that was it. And this guy is a family doctor. Frontline, you know, medical care, taking care of the whole person, and that was his addiction treatment. Uh, 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 those were his rounds to go to mm. AA for a week. hmm I, I wouldn't quite, call that I wouldn't call that state of the
1: art.
0: I heard quite a few uh where the uh the uh, training they got in addictions was 1 hour of their entire mm-hmm. course and they were told to refer people to AA and if people mm-hmm. refused to go that meant that they were in denial and you had to force right. them and you know cut off their medications or something if they refused to go to AA threaten them. Mhm. And that was it. Mm-hmm.
2: no i've 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 uh, i i've i've heard that i've heard that as well in fact um i know a guy of a who was a um um uh, his wife threatened to tell he was a doctor and his wife threatened to tell the medical board if he didn't go
0: so well marty Mann and the national Council on alcoholism did an amazing selling job. Uh, they did an amazing they were they were ago.
2: masterful mhm, they were absolutely masterful and i I think we see the 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 fruits of that labor still today, in so many so many uh so much pop pop culture i mean that you know from from movies that stretch back to if you look at movies from the nineteen thirties just after prohibition was repealed. Drinking was a fun activity. The Sin Man movies and mm-hmm. W.C. Fields. Drinking was was a, a a comedic prop. And by the mid 1940s, drinking was the devil. Drinking was something that was only going to bring you terrible, terrible, terrible pain, especially if you were a woman. For drinking oh. to excess, I should say.
0: Oh, gosh, now you reminded me of a commercial that ran when I was, like, 10 years old from Mm -hmm. Al-Anon or somebody. Uh, They Mm -hmm. they were showing these clips from these classic films of, uh, you know, W.C. Fields and Laurel and Hardy, you know, with the drunk scenes. Mm -hmm. And then they would cut to a father sitting in a chair with a glum, depressed look on his face, holding a glass of booze and his his son is saying, Daddy, Daddy, and then the voice comes up, maybe drinking isn't so funny anymore.
2: Oh, man, that sounds like uh, uh, the Temperance Union brochures that, <laughs> that the school moms used to pass out to these poor immigrant kids whose parents, by the way, were drinking moderately at home. Uh you know, I mean, these, these brochures that these kids and, these, and the temperance pledges that these poor little kids would have to sign educated them. And this was, by the way, this was something that was passed by Congress in the, um, just before Prohibition. It was a kind of bone thrown to the temperance workers or temperance union, rather. And it told children that their hearts could explode if they drank alcohol if alcohol passed their lips but alcohol would um uh weaken the heart muscle and th- to the point of of the heart literally imploding within within the body just really 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 terrible terrible terrifying stuff drinking's not so funny anymore yeah well uh, uh you can draw a pretty straight line from one from from the temperance workers to those messages, can't you?
0: Mhm, yes you can.
2: Well, I think we're running out of time now.
0: I mean, we're still recording, but uh I think I need to close it up. I need to go host our live chat. So, I want to thank oh, you very wait. much.
2: Thank you so much, Ken.
0: So, thank you for being our guest tonight, Gabriel pleasure. And next thank you so much. Week, Next week, our guests will be David J. Hansen, who has the website Alcohol Problems and Solutions, and Sarah Bowen from University of Seattle, who is the author of Mindfulness-Based Relapse Prevention. Thank you, everyone, and good night.